Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, just a quick note, Finding Genius Foundation, we're currently working on our anxiety and depression codex. So the effort is to look for every single possible treatment for anxiety and depression and uh, sequela from them. And then put it all together into a guide for people suffering or people that have loved ones or friends or coworkers that are suffering. And the hopes is that it'll be a good resource for people that, uh, again, otherwise wouldn't get that from going to just one or two practitioners alone. So to find out more, go to Founding Genius findinggeniusfoundation.org. And today, my guest is Dr. Ashani Viranacha. She's a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Cancer Biology. She's also the E.V. McCullum Chair of Biochemistry, Molecular Biology, all part of John Hopkins. So we're going to talk to her about her work. So Ashani, thanks for coming. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me, so within cancer, uh, what's, what's the focus of your research? So uh, my research uh, up till very recently has focused largely on trying to understand what it is that drives melanoma, which is a very aggressive form of skin cancer, to be as aggressive as it is. So we have spent probably the first decade or so of my lab studying the molecular mechanisms and the signal transduction pathways that cause cells to become more and more aggressive. And now we're really interested in understanding what are the changes that are happening in the normal cells that are around those cancerous cells that drive those cells to be more aggressive, more metastatic, and to resist uh, therapy as well. Yeah, when a, when a cancer grows, does it grow by cancer cells dividing and the healthy cells around it are untouched? Or uh, do cancers so co-opt in- healthy cells and turn them cancerous? So... They don't co-opt healthy cells and turn them cancerous. However, they can influence the messages that those healthy cells send to 
back to the cancer cells and to other healthy cells as well. So if you think of a cancer cell as, you know, the cell that's growing and dividing, although the absence of death without the increase in growth and division is also another feature of cancer cells. So uh, not only do they grow and divide more, they also die less, if that makes sense. So what they do is as they're growing and dividing or not dying, but becoming inflammatory, they send signals to the normal cells around them. So for example, one cell type is called a fibroblast and you find fibroblasts everywhere in the body. They're very important for maintaining the structure of everything from your skin to all the other organs. They are the cells that produce collagen and elastin and all of these structural proteins. And cancer cells are known to give messages to those cells to tell them to change their behavior in such a way that it supports the growth of the tumors. But those normal cells are not becoming cancerous themselves. Do they do this by sending out extracellular vesicles or how do That's a part of it. And, you know, our work is really focused on understanding as we age, how those normal cells change and how those normal cells send messages back to the cancer cells. So a lot of focus has been on what do cancer cells say to the normal cells? Our question is, as we get older, what is it that normal cells say to the cancer cells? And those messages can come in the form of extracellular vesicles. They can also come in the form of just secreted growth factors. Factors, and they can be biophysical. So when the uh, fibroblasts change the way they deposit collagen, for example, they can change the physical structure of the matrix. So uh, what happens to the uh, healthy cells surrounding cancer cells? You know, when you study them, are they epigenetically altered, up or down regulated? Like how are they influenced? They're influenced in a number of different ways. Yes, there are epigenetic changes that can occur. There's definitely signal transduction pathways that are altered in those cells. Again, our work kind of focuses on the opposite direction where we're looking at, you know, how the normal cells are changing in and of themselves during aging, and then sending signals to cells that were initiated. So to explain that a little bit better, For example, with melanoma, which is a skin cancer, almost 100% of which are initiated by UV exposure, so tanning, sunburns, etc. Those cells are initiated genetically by by that hit of UV, of UV light, which can cause DNA damage and make an initiated tumor cell that has the potential to be cancerous. And in Many of us, they just kind of sit there. They don't do anything through most of your life. Most of the sun exposure that you get, you get before the age of 18. So a lot of that damage is caused before the age of 18, although it continues over time as well. We know that now. However, as those cells are sitting there initiated, what we have found is that the normal cells around them change just as we age, no relation to the cancer. There's changing You can look at organisms that are young versus age that don't have cancer and see those same changes in their normal cells and their normal skin cells. And what those messages that they make with age are messages that then influence the tumor cells and cause those initiated tumor cells to become aggressive. But what's different about senescent cells versus younger cells? And what what are they signaling differently? So first of all, I'm going to push back a little on the senescent versus younger. So not all old cells are senescent, although they have a lot of 
similarities and commonalities. They are not 100% senescent, and we're finding very different transcriptional signatures between cells that are naturally aged versus those that are artificially made senescent. And so what are some of the differences? There's a lot of inflammatory differences, changes in things like interleukins. Um, There are changes in the Wnt signaling pathways in those old fibroblasts, for example, versus young fibroblasts. And it's not always consistent from organ to organ, which makes it more complicated and more fascinating to study. How do you know a cell is old? How do you know a cell is senescent? What kind of markers do you look at or activity or pathways? So that's a good question. I think it's one the field is still trying to figure out. So there are several markers of senescence, including beta-galactosidase, chromatin marks, so uh, methylation marks, as well as senescence-associated heterochromatic foci. However, you can have all of those things and still have a cell that can proliferate. And that's something we showed a while ago that in melanoma can treat melanoma cells with drugs that drive almost, it looks exactly like senescence. However, those cells can still invade and colonize a distal site and grow out again while continuing to bear all of the hallmarks of these supposedly senescent cells, which should not be dividing at all. So what's difference between a senescent cell and an aged cell? That's something we're still trying to figure out because again, from organ to organ, the older cells look different. But if we take cells from a 70-year-old patient versus a 25-year-old patient, it's not just senescence that's changed. And what we're also finding is that there are big sex differences between senescence in young and old fibroblasts. So for example, we're finding that fibroblasts in young women already have a lot more senescent cells present than fibroblasts in young men. And then that increase in senescence is more dramatic in men than it is in women, for example. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. How do um, how are cells affected if they're just localized to a cancer versus them being in a you know in a metastatic niche? Are they prepared differently? Are they affected differently? What's different? Yeah, about that's them? a great question. So again, because there are such organ site specific changes, we're finding that cells that so I'll give you one concrete example of that. So we can take melanoma cells. We can put them in the skin of young and aged mice, and then we can follow them as they metastasize to distal organs. And in the aged mice, we find that those melanoma cells grow out very rapidly, but in the young mice, they don't. They stay as small little single cell or maybe double or triple cell colonies. And that, but if you look at the dermal fibroblasts, you can track the signaling changes that occur. So in the skin, what we see is that in young skin, those fibroblasts don't secrete a lot of 
non-canonical Wnt proteins, whereas in aged skin, the dermal fibroblasts do. And the one of the key driver proteins there is a protein called secreted frizzle-related protein 2. Now, when those same cells, when the melanoma cells go to the lung, the fibroblasts in the lung don't secrete SFRP2, but they secrete its uh, very close relative, SFRP1. And that acts as an antagonist of the non-canonical Wnt pathway. So it's sort of this up and down dichotomy of Wnt signaling, where in one site you have a slow cycling but highly invasive phenotype that's activated by those fibroblasts in the melanoma cells. And then when they get to the distal site, the fibroblasts there shut it off so those melanoma cells can grow out. Um, has anyone taken mice, let's say, um, you know, an old one that has cancer and injected those cells into a young mouse and an old mouse to see how they see how they takes hold in both differently? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. We haven't done that and I'm not sure anyone else has done that either. Because it may shed light on, like you're saying, uh, it seems like older individuals, uh, we don't know maybe exactly how, but their cells are altered in such a way that I guess they're just more predisposed to uh, cancer influencing them. Is that what you're saying? Again, I think it's the other way around where they're influencing the cancer rather than the cancer influencing them. Oh, why do you think that they're... um influencing the cancer and not the other way around. Because that's what our data suggests. So the fibroblasts, as we age, secrete a whole host of factors that drive metastatic progression. And young fibroblasts, on the other hand, don't really do that. They almost do the opposite and sort of hold the tumor cells in the primary site so they can't go anywhere and metastasize. In answer to your question about injected, so we have injected genetically identical cells in young and aged mice and seen that they behave very differently. And I think one of the most fascinating experiments that we did was to take melanoma cells that have a mutation in the BRAF oncogene. And there are drugs that target that mutation, right? So you have the sort of one drug, one target situation, and nothing else should really matter. However, if you take those genetically identical cells, you put them in a young mouse versus an aged mouse, and then you treat with an inhibitor against, you know, that mutant oncogene, you find that the young and aged mice respond completely differently. Um, And so that's all governed by the behavior of the normal cells around them, dictating to the cancer cells what they should and should not do in response to the drug. So do you think this supports the possible notion that, you know, older individuals are much more likely to get cancer and especially metastatic cancer? Yes, I do. And really, that's sort of what the last decade or so of our research has suggested. And we're really trying to unravel the mechanisms by which that occurs so that we can better target uh, the tumors. So if you look at um, two older individuals, one with cancer in a particular tissue, one that doesn't have cancer in the tissue, and you look at them histologically, like what's observed? Has anyone done that? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, we've done it in to not so much in humans, but in mice, where we see very similar architectural changes in the adjacent normal fibroblasts. Obviously, the tumor itself, as it's growing, will disrupt architecture, will dis- disrupt secretomes, etc. But we see that there are similarities driven by aging that are there independent of the cancer. Now, obviously, once the cancer is in there, it's also sending signals to those fibroblasts. And your question of 
you know, is the cancer sending signals to the fibroblasts differentially in age versus young is a very valid one. And we see that. So we've done experiments where we incubate young and age fibroblasts with conditioned media from melanoma cells. And we see activation of lipid synthesis pathways, for example, in the age fibroblast, but not in the young fibroblast. So it really is this reciprocal conversation that's driven initially by the age fibroblast. And then once the cancer takes hold, the cancer cells are now contributing to the conversation, talking back to those age fibroblasts, if you will. Is all this being observed pre-chemotherapy, if it's being applied? And has anyone looked at you know, the differences between young and old with and without cancer post-chemotherapy. Yes. So we've, uh, so the experiment I described earlier where we targeted the mutant oncogene with an inhibitor that's uh, a targeted therapy. We don't really use chemotherapy uh, for melanoma anymore. We use either immunotherapy or targeted therapy. And we see that there are age-related differences in the way these tumors respond to the therapies. And you mentioned that um, men and women, at least when they're younger, you know, the example you gave, uh, their, their fibroblast activity is very different. If you compare men and women that have the same cancer type, you know, that are, again, younger or older, do you see any other differences that, that jump out, especially, let's say, in older people? Yeah, so we're seeing, you know, so for example, if you look at melanoma, the incidence rate increases logarithmically for men over the age of 55. And it's a much more steady increase for women uh, throughout the course of aging. And men just have a much higher incidence of melanoma than women do. When we look at different functions of the skin fibroblasts in young men versus uh, young women and age men versus age women, I think the, the interesting observation we've taken away from all of those studies, we've looked at everything from mitochondrial metabolism to senescence to, you know, architecture of the cells to the way those cells deposit collagen, all of these different things. And the main message we take away from it is that the trends that occur during aging, so whether it's, you know, increased collagen deposition or increases in senescence, all of the trends are the same between the sexes. However, uh, the magnitude of differences is very, very different. So um, it tends to be a lot more dramatic in the males that as they age than in the women. What about older women that have gone through menopause or men that have gone through andropause or not? Are there any other, is that or any other things, milestones in which the picture changes dramatically and quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something we're looking into now. Um, we don't have enough samples to really to really study that yet, because those are all things that have to come from human, sort of human data. And so we're collecting those to try to better understand that. It's a great question. Yeah, when you say aged People, again, mm-hmm. is there a certain age that's a, a major cliff or there are multiple cliffs in terms of age, you know, for how people um, react to cancer and how it spreads in them? You know, a 60-year-old, is it very different from a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. We use a small range of cutoffs, but really, if you were to press me to say, what are the ages where things really change? Groups that we tend to segregate out are 65 and older and 55 and younger. So that, and then the 10 year span in between, depending on what you're looking at, can fall into either of those categories. So I've always found that very interesting, because 
you know, people really always want a hard cutoff, but obviously just as with anything else, you know, I mean, everyone ages differently too, right? (laughs) So you might know a 50-year-old who looks 30 and a 50-year-old who looks 65. And that's just, you know, all of the other environmental factors that we don't take into account, like stress and, you know, smoking and UV and all those other things can play into that, you know, sort of soft definition of young versus aged. But you guys have made a demarcation, it sounds like, in terms of age. But if we look at the actual raw data, is there a range that even could be established on what is considered aged or not? Yes. So for us, we uh, talk about aging as uh, 60 and over versus 55 and under. And I will say there's a really interesting phenomenon that we call the super aged effect, which is where... When you look all the way out at the other end of the bell curve at like the 85 to 90 year olds, they seem to, again, have less aggressive cancers. Again, it's almost like a bell curve where the tail starts to dip down. And we're fascinated by that. We don't quite understand it yet. But it's, again, something we're looking into in the lab. So if um, healthy tissue has you know, a big influence on cancer tissue, what mm-hmm. kind of therapies does that suggest? So what's fascinating about that is, you know, you, what we've seen, for example, is that the, in the, again, in the aging microenvironment, there are factors that are secreted by the aged fibroblasts that make the melanoma cells behave in a certain way. So one of our most recent studies was looking at lipids and the aged fibroblasts induce the expression of this fatty acid transporter called fat P2 in the melanoma cells, and that allows the melanoma cells to take up lipids from the microenvironment. What what we found was that when we target fat P2, we can make those melanoma cells very, very sensitive to targeted therapy. And so this is really for us was super exciting because it was one of the first times we have a target that is very specific to the aged uh, tumor and microenvironment that we can target to overcome resistance to therapy. So that was super exciting. Um, And there are other secreted factors. So I mentioned SFRP1 and 2. SFRP2 is a factor that drives increases in angiogenesis. It drives metastasis. So that's another one that we could target those aged fibroblasts, target the secretion of that SFRP2 and prevent the tumor cells from being able to invade and resist therapy and undergo angiogenesis. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research and keep tabs? Um, I guess our website, which you're going to ask me for, and I don't have on hand. <laughs> well, well, we'll include them in the show notes later on. That's not a problem. Okay, so websites are good. Uh, also, I'll give a I'll give a quick plug. I also just wrote a book about the the sort of evolution of the lab and the research that we do. That's called "Is Cancer Inevitable," and it will be out in December. Oh, very cool. Is it going to incorporate, I guess, a lot of your research or like what's the main thrust of the book? So it is um, largely about our research, how that developed and evolved. It's also a little bit of my personal story because I grew up in Africa and came out here and sort of worked my way through that whole system. 
and all of the amazing people along the way and who are in my lab who do the work now as well. So Very it touches good. on that stuff too. Yeah, last question. What, what do you think is going to be possible in the near term and what's going to really take uh, to long term to manifest in your research? One thing I'm hoping that will come out very soon in the next couple of years is an inhibitor uh, that we can use in clinical trials and ultimately in the clinic to enhance response to targeted therapy in older patients. Because for, for some patients who are just not eligible for immunotherapy, targeted therapy still remains their best option. So I hope that is going to come out in the short term. And in the long term, I'm hoping that we can identify age-related changes that we can really target, whether through lifestyle changes or medication to enhance and is sort of to increase our chances of surviving cancer. The goal ultimately, you know, is to get to the point where cancer is treated as just another chronic disease that, you know, doesn't is not a death sentence immediately. Well, I know we're moving towards personalized treatment, but do you see that men and women and are treated differently? And is the age of the person taken into account in terms of treatments or not enough? Not at all. I mean, um, I mean, you know, I shouldn't say not at all, but I will say that we have a long way to go in redesigning our clinical trials in this country, even our preclinical work, right? Almost everybody does their work in six to eight week old mice because that's easy. It's quick. It doesn't take a long time to age them. But that doesn't reflect a, a six to eight week old mice is like doing an experiment in a 14 year old human. So to me, not only do we need to change our clinical practices and the way we design our clinical trials, we need to change our preclinical practices as well. Yeah. So right now, I mean, based on your research alone, it seems like uh, there's a definite need to investigate how to treat people differently depending on their age and their sex and you know, and all kinds of other circumstances. Yes, absolutely. I mean, race is going to play a huge factor in this. You know, we already know different cancers are um, more aggressive in people of African descent versus European descent. That definitely all of these extra factors are going to hold keys to better treatments and better understanding of this disease. All right. Well, very good. Well, uh, Dr. Ashani, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And your research sounds to be very, very important. So I, I wish you well with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.